Today's episode is brought to you by DB. DB is a Scandinavian brand that makes backpacks and bags to help people on the move stay ready for anything. From the streets to the peaks, DB's gear is travel tested by some of the world's best athletes, adventurers, and creators. Over the past decade, DB has designed and developed, released and refined the best bags in the market. With DB's patented hookup system, you are able to attach smaller products to your backpack, roller, or tote. Now, I live in Massachusetts, but I'm from Colorado, so I've traveled back and forth throughout the years, and it's always important to have the right bag. I've tried the hard shell bags. Those always end up cracking. I get them back, and you know, like I said, they're cracked. I've had tried the soft bags, and those come back torn. And whenever you come back from Christmas, you have twice as much stuff. So it's great to be able to get bags that you can adjust and you can add things to. Now, we are teaming up with DB to exclusively offer our listeners 10% off your next purchase by using the code POD10 or going to the link in our show notes. DB, it's time to move on, time to get going. Welcome back to Psyker Crime. I'm your host, Nicole Mann. Now, I like always, I just really want to thank you guys. I tell you this every time, but um, I've been doing this for a little over three years. I never thought that I would be able to do this for this long. I never thought that I would reach anybody outside my family. Um, The fact that I have listeners all over the world still amazes me. So with that being said, I just really, really appreciate it. Um, I just... I seeing the fluctuation, uh, seeing the listeners in New Zealand and the listeners in Germany kind of battling it out, going back and forth, you know, to get that slot of, you know, the the second biggest demographic is really warming my heart to know that, you know, you guys are, you know, coming back. And so I appreciate that. Um, like I said last week, um, if you guys didn't listen to the end, I am working on creating more content. Um, so we don't just have this podcast. I've started a YouTube channel. I'm going to definitely do at least one video a week. Um, I'm trying to do two, but that's not always going to work, but there'll always be at least one. The channel's called Dumber Than a Sack of Hair. That's where I look at dumb crying things. Um, eventually what we're trying to, we're, we're going to do, uh, it'll be October or November. We're going to do brackets and we're going to do a bracket style tournament to see what state gets to go head to head with Florida uh, to battle it out for a state with the dumbest criminals to see if anybody can re- dethrone Florida man as the dumbest criminals in the United States. Um, so, you know, and then, like I said, we have this podcast and I, and I try and uh, upload stuff for early release on the Patreon um, and give you guys photos and things on the Patreon as well. So um, just trying to make sure that I have a lot of content and very different things for you guys. Um, So I'm trying to just keep it fresh and and get more stuff out there. There's also the uh, merch store. There's different kinds of merchandise. I even threw some stuff in there for people who have been dealing with choosing beggars, Um, just a variety of different things. So with all that being said, let's get into this week's crime. Uh, This week's crime has to do with voodoo. Um, Actually, it has to do with a murder that happened that they assumed was a voodoo murder. So first, let's explain the different types of voodoo or how it really works. Kendomba 
JJ, also known as Brazilian voodoo, is one of the major branches of Candombale. I'm totally butchering this, I'm sorry. Candombale JJ, known as Brazilian voodoo, is one of the major branches or nations of Candombale. It is was developed in the Portuguese Empire among the Fon and Eunate slaves. Jeje is a Yoruba word meaning stranger, which is what the Fon and Eu slaves represented to the Yoruba slaves. Jeje spirits are called voodoos. According to tradition, they were introduced to the kingdom of Dahomey from the nearby lands by its founder, King Ajatado, on the advice of a seer. Their religion was reorganized and uniformized by King Agawa in the 18th century. Jeje Vodans are sometimes cult cultivated in houses of other nations by different names. For instance, the Vodan Dan or Besson is called Oxenpierre and Candomblé Ketu. Conversely, the Ketu Oryxos may be cultivated in Jeje's houses but retain their names. Now, they are organized into families. Dombe is the sacred serpent that represents the spirit of the Vodan Dan. Mawa is the supreme being of the Jejes and the Fonts. Liswa, who is male, also is co-responsible for creation. Loko is the firstborn of the Vodans, owner of the jewel in Ma, that is the Ryampa. Go is the Vodan of metal, war, fire, and technology. Guacaviko, Vudan that commands lightning. Da, Vudan of wealth, represented by the rainbow serpent. Aqua, Vudan, owner of the seas. Ayase, female Vudan, owner of the earth's crust and markets. Agasu, Vudan, representing the royal lineage of the kingdom of Dohome. Aqua, Vudan, of hunting and protector of the forest. Lapwa is the youngest of the Mawa and Liswa and represents the entrances and exits and sexuality. Fa Fudam, a divinity and destiny. Isiri is fresh water. Pasis Vodam of powder and dry land and is represented by the tiger. Basim is the owner of fresh water and in Udamwe and Utwa, of which he is the patron. Sabo Vodam of thunder in Tabasi Anai or Mami Otwa are all female Vudans of the Jaka, Javivi, and Salibura. Nani, considered by all followers of Vudan as the great universal mother. Tambar Dimina is a synchronistic religion that was developed in northern Brazil. Tambor means drum in Portuguese and refers to the importance of the rhythmic element to worship. Mina derives from the name Saul Jorge de Mina, now also known as El Mina Castile, and refers to the designation given to African slaves. Although the name did not necessarily refer to slaves who had passed through the fortress or the port of Saul Jorge de Mina itself, but rather to the different ethnicities over time. For example, Minopopo was often the designation for people from Little Popo, 
originally Akan speakers who had migrated from the west of the Volta River, and Minanago and Minacongo were other designations sometimes found in Brazil. The tambor of Mina worships, Vudan, Arixas, and the other entities, also called Encantados, are spirits of people who are called Gentis. If they are European kings, princes, nobles, like King Sebastian of Portugal, or King Munwal, or King Luis, if they are of native origin, or Turcos, or Moorish kings of origin, or indigenous people, like Pautiqua, are Jao de Mata Rea de Bandira, Vo Serpepia Salta das Matas, or many others. Cuban Vudo, a synchronistic religion that was developed by the Spanish Empire. Many people aren't aware of that. In Cuban Vodo, it is a religion that obviously is indigenous to Cuba. It was formed with the blending of the Fon and U beliefs and the Dahomey religion, which came to form from Haitian Vodo. Lao are worshipped by the religion's practitioners. In Cuban voodoo, it is noteworthy for its popularity in the province of Cuba and the lack of academic study of this particular religion. Even though much of the practices come from Haitian immigrants bringing Haitian voodoo to Cuba, the Cuban practices subsequently evolved and came to differ in many ways. For instance, feats of strength are more common in the ceremonies and dance movements differ greatly. Cuban Vultu is comprised of three divisions, the indigenous American division, whose spirits are of the American origin, the African division, whose spirits are of African origin, usually fond in U spirits, and the European division, whose spirits are of European origin, usually Spanish spirits. Then there's Dominican Vultu, a synchronistic religion that was also developed in the Spanish Empire. Dominican Voodoo is composed of three main divisions and an annexed extra. The Rada division, also known as the White or Sweet division, whose spirits are of African origin, usually Fan Yu and Nagul spirits. The Petro division, also known as Fire or Bitter division, mostly of Bantu spirits. The Geta division, also called the Black division, whose spirits deal with death and ancestors. And lastly, the Native American division, also called the Water Division, whose spirits are of a pre-Columbian origin and usually refer to Tayano ancestral lands. Most spirits are synchronistic with Catholic saints imagery. These are some of the main features that distinguish Dominican Vodo from other forms of Vodo. Some major deities in, that are venerated in Dominican Vodo are Anaspaya, the Iowa of love and happiness, she is synchronized with St. Anne. Her feast day is July 26. Belebakan, the Iowa of justice and protection against demons, she is synchronized with St. Michael, the archangel, and his feast is September 29. Candela Sedife, a law of fire, also a warrior and protector spirit, considered to be one of the Awakwo, synchronized with Charles Baramio. His feast day is November 4th. Santa Marta de Minidoro, or Filomino Lubiano, the aqua responsible for dominion over men. She is synchronized with Saint Martha. Her feast day is July 29th. Uguan Beliano, the aqua of warriors and soldiers, 
he is synchronized with Santiago. His feast day is July 25th. Baron, the Aqua of Death, he is synchronized with San Elias. His feast day is November 2nd. Matrasili, the Aqua of Love and Beauty and Wealth, she is synchronized with Mater de Rosa. In Haitian voodoo, this is practiced predominantly in Haiti, obviously. It's an African dysphoric religion that was developed in Haiti between the 16th and 19th centuries. It arose through a process of synchronism between the traditional religions of West Africa and the Roman Catholic form of Christianity. Inherents, adherents are known as voodooists or servants of the spirits or Haitian Creole Suvet. There is no central authority in control of voodoo, which is organized through autonomous groups. Voodoo revolves around spirits known as Ahwa, typically deriving their names and attributes from traditional West African divinities. They are equated with Roman Catholic saints and divided up into different nations or nations, such as Torata and the Petwa. Various myths and stories are told about these Ihwa, which are regarded as subservient to a transcendent creator deity, Bantra, an interior tradition. Voodooists usually meet to venerate the Ihwa in Unofos temples, run by priests or priestesses. A central ritual involves practitioners drumming, singing, and dancing to encourage an Ihwa to possess one of their members and thus communicate. Offerings to the Ihwa include fruit and animals. Offerings are, are also given to the spirits of the dead. Several forms of divination are utilized to decipher messages from the Ihwa, healing rituals, and participation of herbal remedies. Amulets and charms also play a prominent role. Voodoo developed among Afro-Haitian communities amid the Atlantic slave trade of the 16th to 19th centuries. It arose through the blending of traditional religions brought to the island of Hispaniola by enslaved West African nations. Many of them were the Yorba or the Fawn and the Roman Catholic teachings of the French colonists who controlled the island. Many voodooists were involved in the Haitian Revolution of 1791 to 1804, which overthrew the French colonial government, abolished slavery, and established modern Haiti. The Roman Catholic Church left for several decades following the revolution, allowing voodoo to become Haiti's dominant religion. In the 20th century, growing immigration spread voodoo abroad. The late 20th century saw growing leaks between voodoo and related traditions in West Africa and the Americas, such as Santeria and Candomable. Many Haitians practice voodoo to some extent, although typically also practice Catholicism, seeing no issue in pursuing two different systems simultaneously. Smaller voodooist communities exist elsewhere, especially among the Haitian dysphoria in the United States. Both in Haiti and abroad, voodoo is spread beyond its Afro-Haitian origins and is practiced by individuals of various ethnicities. Voodoo has faced criticism throughout its history, having repeatedly been described as one of the world's most misunderstood religions. Now, there's tons of different ahwas are different, like they're literally considered to be thousands and thousands of different spirits in the Haitian voodoo. If I really were to go through this list, we could be here for a very, very, very long time. 
um, I'm just going to kind of go down to a little bit of cliff notes. Teasing the existence of a single supreme god, voodoo has been described as monotheistic. This entity, which is believed to have created the universe, is called Bondi or Boni, a term deriving from French Bondi or good god. Another term used is the Grand Mat, which derives from Freemasonry. Voodoo as Bondi is seen as the ultimate source of power, deemed responsible for maintaining a universal order. Bondi is also regarded as remote and transcendent, not involving itself in human affairs. There is thus little point in approaching it directly. Haitians will frequently use the phrase si bonde vi, if bonde is willing, suggesting a belief that all things occur in accordance with the divinity's will. While voodooists often equate bondi with Christian God, voodoo does not incorporate belief in a powerful antagonist that opposes the supreme being akin to the christian notion of satan voodoo has also been characterized as being the opposite in the fact that they consider it to be polyethistic it teaches the existence of beings known as the ihwa a term varyingly translated to english as spirits gods or geniuses Days of the each one is associated with specific colors, days of the week, or objects. The Ihua can either be loyal or capricious in their dealings with devotees. Voodooists believe that Ihua are easily offended, for instance, if offered if you offer them food they dislike. When angered, the Ihua are believed to remove protection from their devotees or to inflict misfortune, illness, or madness on an individual. Although there are exceptions, most Ihua names derive from the Fon and Yoruba languages. New Ihua are nevertheless added. Practitioners believe that some voodoo priests and priestesses become Ihua after their death, or that certain talismans become Ihua. The Ihua are divided into nations. This classification system derives from the way in which enslaved West Africans were divided into nations upon their arrival in Haiti usually based on their African port of departure. So, like I said, there's just so many, like there's literally thousands. So we won't go into all of the nations, but the ones that you hear about the most are, uh, you hear about Legba um, the most. Legba is a spirit um and Ihuhue who um oversees not so much death but he oversees the passage to death the passage to the spirits it is not a situation like you see on tv and you make a deal with him so um papa legba um also known as legba is the first Yohua saluted during ceremonies. He is depicted as a feeble old man wearing rags and using a crutch. Papa Legba is regarded as the protector of gates and fences and thus of the home, as well as roads, paths, and crossroads. Many use him and sing his praises when they want passage to their ancestors. The second Ihua are usually greeted are the Marasa, our sacred twins. In voodoo, every nation has its own Marasa, reflecting a belief that twins have special powers. Agua, also known as Agua Tarayo, is associated with aquatic life, protector of ships, or fishermen. 
Another one that you will hear um, a lot of is Izili of the waters because she's believed to bring good luck and wealth of the seas. Izili Frida is the Awa of love and luxury. It's a personification of feminine beauty and grace. You will also hear Izili Dantu or Izili Bantu um, is an Iwa who takes the form of a peasant woman. However, Izili Dantu Ambantwa, she is the god or spirit of both protection and war. Zaka is the Iwa of crops and agriculture, usually dressed as papa or cousin, and his female consort is Kazun, Iwa Kasu. Um, Iwa, she, and then Loka is the Iwa of vegetation. And he seemed to give healing powers to various plants. So, like I said, I could keep going and going. There's tons and tons and tons. But the ones you hear the most about are Legba um, and, like I said, Izilidantu. Um, then you go down and you hear Hudu. So, Hudu is a form of spirituality, what they call root work or low country voodoo. Hoodoo is a set of spiritual practice, traditions, and beliefs created by enslaved Africans in North America, so here in the U.S. and in Canada, that were held in secret from slaveholders. Hoodoo evolved from various traditional African religions and practices in American South, incorporated various elements of indigenous botanical knowledge. In the Gula South, uh, in the Gula, South Carolina Low Country, Hoodoo is also known as Low Country Voodoo. So this is the place where they speak Gilegichi Creole. And for those of you who don't know, Creole is was a slave language. Um, how it worked is the slave uh, owners were scared that if people, if they let them speak their native languages, they would rebel against them. So they forced them all to speak English. The problem was what ended up happening was a hybrid language of their original African languages because they would buy them specifically from different tribes or different regions thinking, okay, now they have to speak English and they can't talk to each other because they don't speak the same languages. But instead you would get a mashup of their African languages and the language that the slave owner um, was speaking. Giligichi is an American Creole, which is a mashup of the slave languages and then the uh, uh, the English um, in that region. Um, where I live, we have um, Cape Verdean Creole, which is a type of Portuguese Creole. We also have Portuguese Creole as well. And yes, Cape Verdean Portuguese Creole are different, even though Cape Verde is uh, part of or from around Portugal and they speak Portuguese there. Um, it is very different because the base language is different. Um, so while the base language in Cape Verdean Creole should be Portuguese, if you go island to island in Cape Verde, the, uh, it's different, the dialect is different. So I can get a translator and say that I need a Cape Verdean tr Creole translator for a client and they will be speaking a completely different language than my client and my client can't understand them. I will get a Portuguese Creole translator and my client can't talk to them because the dialect is that different. So that's, and then when you get Cajun Creole, Cajun Creole and Haitian Creole are not the same, even though the base language is French in both instances. So while the base language is the same, the, the 
African languages that is hybrided in with them are different and is what causes the Creole to be so different. So many people are not aware that in the United States in and of itself, there's multiple different types of Creole being spoken. So much like the religion, the language um, changes as well. So um, the Low Country Voodoo following the great migration of African Americans, hoodoo spread throughout the United States. Practitioners of hoodoo called root workers or conjure doctors, conjure men or conjure women. Regional synonyms for hoodoo include conjure or root work. Approximately 388,000 enslaved Americans from various ethnic groups were transported to North America from the 17th to 19th centuries as part of the transatlantic slave trade. They were from the Congo, Igbo, Akan, Mandi, Yorba, Fon, U, and Fulbi, among other tribes. After the arrival of the diverse African ethnic groups to the United States, hoodoo was created by enslaved African Americans for their spiritual survival as a form of resistance against slavery. Because the African American community did not have the same medical or psychological aids as European Americans, its members were forced to rely on each other for survival. As a result, free and enslaved African Americans relied on hoodoo for their protection. Diverse African ethnic groups from West and Central Africa all worked on the same plantations. These diverse African ethnic groups in the United States over time merged into one larger ethnic group called African Americans who were the creators of hoodoo. The practice of hoodoo unified enslaved Africans of diverse origins in America. Despite this ethnic diversity on American plantations, West and Central Africans all brought from Africa their all their own forms of the conjure that developed into a practice known as hoodoo and it united them in their use of conjure for liberation. For example, the practice of the ring shout in hoodoo unified diverse African ethnic groups on slave plantations. Counterclockwise circle dancing was and is practiced in Central and West Africa to communicate with the ancestors for and to help free people from spirit possession. Now, Louisiana or New Orleans voodoo, that is a set of African-based spiritual folk ways. Um, it's also known as Creole voodoo. It's an African dysphoric religion which originated in the U.S. state of Louisiana. It arose as a process of synchronizing West African voodoo with Christianity and Haitian voodoo. The religion existed from the 18th century to the early 20th century, by which point it had almost died out, only to be revived in an altered form in the late 20th century. There is no central authority that is control of Louisiana voodoo because it's organized by several different groups. Now, historical records reveal the names of many deities, Blanc Dani, Grand Zombie, Papa Labat, uh, just to name a few, um, many of the practices follow those of West African voodoo. Uh, so those are like the main types. And even when you get down into, um, they also, um, when you get down into West African voodoo, which is uh, practiced by the Gebe speaking ethnic groups of Africa, um, they uh, also uh, first acknowledge Legba in their rites and rituals. So Legba is front and center and is there quite often. So um, 
when you this so really quick before we get into this week's crime i just want to remind you again today's episode is brought to you by db db is a scandinavian brand that makes backpacks and bags to help people on the move stay ready for anything from the streets to the peaks db's db's gear is travel tested by some of the world's best athletes adventurers and creators over the past decade DB has designed, developed, and released and refined the best bags in the market. With DB's patented hookup system, you are able to attach smaller products to your backpack, roller, or tote. Now, I live in Massachusetts, but my family's in Massachusetts. I go back and forth, and it's super important to have the right luggage to travel with. Multiple times, like I tried the hard shell case. It's come back to me cracked and all messed up. I've had the soft ones. They've come back to me torn. And when you go and visit at Christmas, you come back with a bigger bag and you don't always have the ability to fit everything. So the idea that you can hook smaller products to a bigger one is really great. So we are teaming up with DB to exclusively offer our listeners 10% off your next purchase by using the code POD10 or going to the link in our show notes. DB, it's time to move on, time to get going. Now, this week's crime happened early one afternoon in late January 1911. Yes, all the way back in 1911. Neighbors feared something terrible had taken place at 605 Western Avenue. And indeed, when Officer Bailu arrived at the house, he found the home's three occupants, a man, a woman, and a small boy, lying in bed with their skull split open. The bed was drenched in blood, and bloody footprints were speckled on the floor. The doors were locked, indicating the killer had come in through a window and murdered the family while they slept. There was a bucket of blood in one corner, and the head of the bed just above the bastion body stood a bloodied axe. The local newspaper called it the most brutal murder in the history of this section, but it was just one of the axe slings that would terrify parts of Louisiana and Texas in the early 1910s. The crimes would become connected to rumors of a deranged voodoo priestess and a cult called the Church of the Sacrifice, which was said to butcher its victims as part of their strange rituals. But though suspicion initially focused on several men, the murderer would turn out to be an African-American woman named Clementine Barnaby, who may have had little connection to voodoo at all. She would eventually confess to killing 35 people, though exactly how many people she murdered, if any, is unknown. While sources argue about the first murder connected to the case, it may have been a woman named Edna Oppelhaus and her three children killed in Rain, Louisiana on November 1909. The next killing took place in late January 1911, when Walter Byers, his wife, their son, were hacked to death in Crawley, Louisiana. The police were somewhat used to crime happening in their largely poor part of town, but the brutality of the murders, brained with an axe, as one source put it, surprised them. A little more than four weeks later, on February 25th, the murderer struck again, this time killing four members of the Andress family in Lafayette, Louisiana. By then, the police began to suspect that their crimes were so similar, they must have been the work of the same terrible monster. A month later, in San Antonio, Texas, Alfred and Elizabeth Casway were murdered in a similar fashion, along with their three children. After a few false leads, police focused on Raymond Barnaby, a local petty criminal and sharecropper from Lafayette who lived in the back part of town. Raymond was arrested based on suspicions from his mistress after they had gotten into a fight. 
She griped about him to a friend and suggested a possible connection to the murders. During his trial in October of 1911, Raymond's children, Zephyrin and Clementine Barnaby, testified against their father, and the teenage Clementine told a graphic story of her father returning home one night with blood on his clothes as he threatened the family. Zephyrin confirmed the story, adding that their father bragged that he killed the whole damn Andrus family. Both children said they feared for their life if their father was ever free. But while Raymond sat in jail, another murder took place. And on November 26, 1911, Norbert Randall and his wife and three children and their nephew were all murdered in Lafayette in the same heinous fashion, but with one addition. While the rest of the family was attacked with an axe, Norbert was shot in the head. It was clear a killer was still on the loose. Lafayette Parish Sheriff Louise Lacoste, who was already suspicious of Raymond's children, arrested them both. His suspicions stemmed in part from the fact that they had bad reputations. Oh no, they have bad reputations. They must be murderers. Sorry. <laughs> During Raymond's trial, their neighbors, the Stevens family, described them as filthy, shifty, and degenerates. Oh no, they're shifty. They must be murderers too. And there was another detail that concerned Lacoste. When police came to the Barnaby residence to arrest Raymond, blood from the Andrus murders had been discovered on Clementine's clothes. She testified during her father's trial that she had wiped the blood there, but the sheriff wasn't sure. Indeed, when deputies arrested Clementine and searched the family's home, they found more damning evidence. As the Daily Picune reported on November 28, 1911, there was a complete suit of women's clothes in her room saturated with blood and covered with brains okay that that could be bad not only that but the latch on their door was covered in blood Zephyrin provided an alibi for the night of the murders but clementine had none and was taken to jail even after that the murders still didn't stop in january 1912 i shouldn't laugh Three more families were murdered. In the third instance, when Felix Broussard and his wife and their three children were killed in Lake Charles, Louisiana, the killer splayed the victim's hands apart with pieces of wood and left a message on the wall. Some sources say the message was in blood, others say in pencil. Either way, the letters said, When he maketh the inquisition for blood, he forgotteth not the cry of the humble. This is from Psalm 912 in the King James Bible. The message was signed Human 5. The number in the signature led the police to think a band of murderers was at work, and it also lent the group a nickname picked up by the press, the Human 5 Gang, because that makes all the sense in the world. The newspapers had a field day and seized on the idea that the murders were connected to a voodoo ritual. One of the first to take that angle was the El Paso Gazette publishing a story on the Broussard murders titled Voodoo Horrors Break Out Again. The story suggested that the crimes were connected to human sacrifices that took part as part of a voodoo ritual and emphasized the idea that the number five was somehow having a ritualistic relevance. Two months ago, six members of the Wexford family perished at the hands of the, fan of the fanatics, but one was an infant that had been born only one day before. What? He was only a day old? That's a little extra. 
and all that probability had not been taken into consideration when the plans for the awful human sacrifice were constant. Look, nobody's thinking about that when they go in to kill people. They're not like, how long is this person be alive? No, absolutely not. The reporter wrote, now comes the Broussard tragedy with its five victims, thus completing a series of sacrifices of five families with five victims. No, no, shut up. You don't know what you're talking about. Each evidently intended to have involved five victims. These numbers were not accurate. The victim counts in particular with the family size. The, the, the victim count ranged from four to six. The El Paso Gazette was one of many to run with the voodoo angle. After the story hit Newsance, several local papers also printed the possibility that the murders were connected to voodoo. Around the same time, the rumors were swirling that Clementine was the leader of some kind of cult called the Church of the Sacrifice, which is supposedly led by Reverend King Harris, a Pentecostal revival preacher with a small congregation connected to the Christ-sanctified Holy Church. Police took Harris in for interrogation after rumors of religious involvement ran rampant, but the reverend had never heard of the Church of the Sacrifice and was visibly shaken to think that his sermons could have possibly inspired a series of bloody axe murders. Can someone please explain to me how people are saying this is a voodoo murder, but then you bring in a Pentecostal minister? Or did white people really just go, okay, all black people are involved in shady religion, so if you're a black preacher, you must be doing something wrong because I don't get it. Pentecostals and voodoo don't mix at all. Eventually, investigators would at least get some kind of answers. On April 5th, 1912, Clementine made a full confession, admitting to 17 murders, even though they don't have 17 murders, but that's okay. She claimed she had bought a voodoo charm meant to protect her while she committed the murders. She said she and her accomplices drew lots to see who would commit the murders. She also said she disguised herself as a man so she could lurk better at night. Yeah, because that makes all the sense. People pay attention to a shady black man hanging out in their neighborhood. They don't pay attention to a woman, even if she's a black and they're like, all right, whatever, just, just a woman. So that doesn't make sense at all. The Daily PQ noted she declared she killed the children because she did not want them to be left orf orphans in the world. Her motive for the crimes were never clear. The Lafayette Advertiser printed her full confession on April 5, 1912, but added at the end, Clementine's confession has been received with varying shades of belief, owing to the positive way she swore in the trial of her father and the misleading information she has given about her accomplices. Indeed, it was difficult to keep Clementine's story straight. She had previously testified in court that her father was a dangerous man behind several murders, but then they kept happening. She gave names for her accomplices, but when the sheriff investigated them, they went nowhere. Several arrests were made, but the search for the rest of the Human Five gang was a complete dead end. District Attorney Howard E. Brunner theorized that some of these murders were copycat crimes, but he believed Clementine was a moral pervert. You guys need to understand that literally was an actual diagnosis back in the day. Like the way that retardation was a diagnosis, the way that homosexuality was considered a mental illness, literally back in the day, moral pervert was a diagnosis. Moral retardation was an actual thing back in the day. So before people were diagnosed as psychopaths or sociopaths, literally they would say someone 
was a moral pervert or that they suffered from moral retardation. So I'd like to laugh, but I can't because that that's literally his version of saying that she's a psychopath who is guilty of everything she confessed to. Clementine had admitted to caressing the corpse after she killed them. Jesus. I don't believe that at all. <laughs> I think she's just a stupid girl who will tell the cops anything they want to hear. The court records for Barnaby's trial were summarized and published by the Federal Writers Project in 1942, and their account makes plain that there was a great deal of public confusion regarding the details of the case at the time. For one thing, there was never a church of the sacrifice, as the papers had said. Reverend Harris had preached in Lafayette the night of the murders, but otherwise was completely uninvolved. According to the Federal Writers Project, a state of confusion existed in the public regarding the church of the sacrifice the sacrifice church, the existence of which had never been established. He owned, had a church called the sanctified church and frequent arrests of the later were made. It's possible the words sanctify and sanctified were confused with sacrifice after voodoo rumors began to spread and that misinformation kept spreading. But the voodoo damage had already been done. Lafayette's population was willing enough to place the, the blame on the nebulous voodoo priestess committing murder while leading to a sacrificial sect. It didn't help that Clementine had named a voodoo priest who had given her an invisibility charm, Joseph Thibodeau. Of course, it's Joseph Thibodeau. Every time and voodoo is involved in anything, there's somebody hanging around with the last name of Thibodeau. She said he also gave her the ideas for the crimes but Thibodeau swore he that had never happened and that far from being a voodoo priest he simply just engaged in root work thank you he just practiced low country voodoo thank you one local paper explained to its readers that Thibodeau who has never ever been regarded as anything but peaceful in disposition and harmless in intention said that he was noticed for his practice of helping people conjure their warts away. Despite investigators' suspicions regarding Clementine's confession, the stories about her continued to circulate. Brunner officially filed charges against her on April 14, 1912. While she sat in jail, she confessed to a total of 35 murders but kept retelling her story with different details and the details differ so wildly that it made it difficult to know what was actually the truth. Her defense attorneys claimed that she was insane, but she stood trial and was sentenced to life at the Louisiana Penitentiary at the age of 19. I told you she was a girl who's just telling people what they wanted to hear. She attempted an escape on July 31st, 1913, what was caught the same day. Despite her escaped attempt, she was considered a model prisoner. She didn't, however, serve very long. According to one brief report about the prison, Clementine received a procedure that was said to restore her to normal condition, which allowed her to be released on good behavior after serving 10 years. What do you think the procedure was? A lobotomy that didn't restore her to her normal condition that made her zombie. Jesus. So what about Clementine's story is real? What is a media fabrication? The evidence found in her room and the brain matter on her clothes suggest that Clementine did commit something of the murders, but definitely not all of them. Dr. Jeff Anderson, a history professor at the University of Louisiana Monroe, believes that either Clementine or someone in her house performed the majority of the murders, but that her confessions are so contradictory that 
it's impossible to believe that she in totality committed all of the murders she said she did. The question of Barnaby's accomplishments and whether or not some kind of voodoo played into it is never been answered. Perhaps if Clementine's race or class had been different, we'd be closer to knowing the truth. Many people believe she scandalized the presses, stirring up a gumbo of moral panic in a state where civil war and slavery remained a living memory. Everything about Clementine Barnaby represented a collision, even a perversion of cultures in the eyes of white Louisiana, from her mangled Creole French to her mangled beliefs. A tabloid baiting blend of voodoo, itself a blend of Catholicism and West African tribal rights and evangelical Christianity. Strangely enough, there was more than one set of axe murders terrorizing Louisiana at that very time. Nearby, the murders of the infamous Axeman of New Orleans tormented the locals, and those killings were never solved. That's why it begs the question, were the killings that continued to happen while she and her family members were in jail, the works of the Axeman of Louisiana, or not? Because remember, murders continued to happen after they arrested her. So that's the story of the voodoo cult murders of 19 the late 1900s early 19 teens 19 teens i'm not sure how you say that um next week we are going to look into this is something i really wanted to cover um it took me um, a minute to find the right time to do it we're going to cover the boston drug lab scandal now the reason i wanted to do this is this did affect me personally um i'm was a substance abuse counselor for a very long time. I'm getting ready to go back into doing interventions. And um, my, I had multiple clients who were actually affected by this. So not one, but two drug labs in the Boston metro area had scandals at the same time. So we're gonna cover the Boston drug lab scandal next week, which continues to blow my mind. I cannot comprehend how things got to that level with not one, but two labs. It's total insanity. So in the meantime, I hope you sleep better knowing the how and why people do such awful things.